Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. This is your host, Brian, and I'm actually redoing this intro because some things have changed since I did the intro and the podcast last night. So let me explain to you what I mean by that. So politics. Politics are rather topical and things change very quickly. So this post today is about Pete Buttigieg. And I think it's too much about Pete Buttigieg after reading the news today. And if I was to do this all over, I would actually talk about how Pete Buttigieg is nothing to worry about. Um, Bernie Sanders is doing absolutely great right now. And I should have remembered this, but in 2016, in the Republican primaries, you may have remembered every week there was a new story about the new leader and there was always this denial about the fact that there was one guy remaining consistent throughout one ring to rule them all and that was donald trump i mean do you remember i'd like to go back and do some research on this but i remember there was one point where marco rubio who i consider to be the pete Buttigieg of that campaign where he all of a sudden was like oh rubio's gonna win rubio 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 and then like week later, two weeks later, he was pretty much done. So I'm just going to read you this poll from 538.com, um, Nate Silver's site. Now I've got my issues with Nate Silver as far as his punditry, as far as he's very also somewhat establishment in his perspective, but uh, the stats they use are usually pretty good and uh, he's pretty reliable on that regard. And I'll just read you this poll. So I'm, I'd like to put a screenshot, but this is a podcast. So I'll have to, uh, if you want to see it, maybe I will thinking about writing a blog about this. So anyway, I'll put it on there. So if you look at this picture that I'm looking at right now, the latest odds for the winner of the delegate of the primary going into the delegation is Sanders is at one and two, 49%. No one, meaning uh, nobody got the 50% at one and four, 24%. Biden, 1 in 5 at 18%, Warren, 1 in 20 at 40%, and Buttigieg, 1 in 30 at 4%, and all others, 1 in 100. So Bernie's way ahead, and the interesting thing is if you look at this graph, um, you can see right before Iowa, Biden and Sanders were kind of neck and neck at around 27, 28%, and then and actually, if you go even, not even, let's see, can you tell me how far back this is? Uh, let's see. Well, it would probably be, anyway, around, whenever Delaney dropped out, so probably end of January, Biden was, at, according to this, this site, Biden was at like 46%, and Sanders was at like 30 And then right as Iowa was kind of happening, it was like they put him at kind of, well, even I guess before before it started, Biden was still at like 40%, Sanders was at 33 anyway. And then there's this giant drop off the cliff for Biden's uh, graph, which is represented with a rather girly man, pink, purple. Anyway, he drops off and goes from like basically the day of Iowa from almost 40, 45%, maybe 40, it's hard to see exactly and and down to the current 18 percent where bernie jumps from like 30 percent to where he's at now at 49 percent. this is after iowa so that's the impact of iowa basically bernie jumps up 20 points and biden falls off 23 points and everybody else is let's see where'd Buttigieg end up Buttigieg is still like well they gave him a little tiny bump but he's still kind of trending down overall four percent you know so all this media focus on, oh, the momentum is all in, you know, Buttigieg's favor and all this. It's, again, what I think I want to rewrite the blog post about, and if I was to redo the episode, maybe enough of it comes through, but um, is the integrity, the dishonesty, and the media is such a big part of this. Um, it's my focus because, you know, we I think we can expect all, you know, what is it, uh, the Lord Acton saying, you know, governments, all politicians lie or governments lie. And I.F. Stone said that too. I think great American muckracking journalist of the 20th century. Um, 
all governments lie. So we expect political campaigns to spin things and stuff. The problem is right now is the media is spinning it with them and colluding with them. And that's where all the confusion's coming in. And that's why I focus on the media so much, you know. I, I honestly would say to you, like, nine, or not 9-11, but um, the war in Iraq doesn't happen without the collusion of the New York Times, Judith Miller, the media. And I, I don't want to just single her out. It was like the media, you know, this... And every, oh, it's so monolithic. The media is so big. Well, there is a kind of echo chamber in the media, and if you don't know that, then do some reading. <laughs> Noam Chomsky, read some. I mean, it's not you don't have to read Chomsky. Just open your eyes a little bit. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Um, there's a big echo chamber in the traditional media, and so that institution is also falling apart. See what's happening right now collectively is that all these institutions are falling apart. And we're losing faith in them for good reason, because they're not trustworthy anymore. So uh, anyway, I won't go on anymore. But that poll, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't need to spend all this time on Buttigieg. I'm not going to have to read his book, thank God, because I started reading. There's an article I reference in here, and I talk about how um, both that writer and myself, I said, Buttigieg is a good writer. And I'd read this article last spring. It's the Nathan J. Robinson article that I bring up in the the main pod and uh i'd forgotten this but he said you know this art this book is well written but uh let's see i'll read you the line that i read today he said um da, 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 da. Uh, sorry the first thing yeah that's not it well he says the first thing to say about shortest way home is that while is it extremely well constructed it is not tremendously exciting this is because Buttigieg's life has been squeakily bland and respectable. I don't really care that much about that. Um, but it sounds like there's just not much in that book as far as like policy. And like, I want an exciting book and an exciting um, person. I'll read you one more thing here just about from that article. Um, this is going all out of order, but it says, Before I dive into Shortest Way Holmes' account of the life and career of Pete Buttigieg, let me be upfront about my bias. So this is this is my bias, too, as Brian. I'm saying that. So that's why I'm reading this. I don't trust former McKinsey consultants. I don't trust military in intelligence officers. And I don't trust the type of people likely to appear on 40 under 40 lists, the valedictorian to Harvard to Rhodes scholarship types who populate the American elite. I don't trust people who get flattering reams of newspaper profiles and are pitched as the next big thing that you must pay attention to. And I don't trust wonderkins who become successful too early. Why? Because I am somewhat cynical about the United States meritocracy. Few people amass these kinds of resumes if they are the type to openly challenge authority. Noam Chomsky says that the factors predicting success in our meritocracy are a combination of greed, cynicism, obsequiousness and subordination, lack of curiosity and independence of mind, and self-serving disregard for others. So, when journalists see Harvard and think impressive, I see it and think, uh-oh. And, okay, I just read that's and that's me too, you know, like, to me it's like, that's just my take, you know, I think people who are doing well in the system right now are people like the system to me is corrupt and broken so if someone's like succeeding at it and like getting rewarded i'm thinking well that person's probably corrupt and broken too now um and then he goes on to say like i try my best to be fair though i thought former michigan gubernatorial candidate abdul el saeed was was suspect because of his shiny resume but after examining his proposals and listening to his speeches i realized he was the real deal he had done well in school, but he was genuinely outraged by preventable human misery, talked openly about taking on corporate oligarchy, and had bold plans for revolutionizing healthcare, environmental policy, and just about everything else. I have lots of friends who are the products of elite institutions, but became critical of those institutions after being exposed to their inner workings. If Pete Buttigieg is one of those, great. Pete Buttigieg is not one of those. And I really like that part. That I should have read that all together. Sorry. Um... Because personally, as a white male, I get frustrated sometimes, too, where people think, oh, they, they write me off. Oh, you're a white male, so you have this opinion. It's like, no, 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 you have to listen to me. <laughs> like, that's so I do understand, you know, that that's a really good point there. Like, just because someone goes through and does well in the system doesn't mean they're necessarily a bad person. But again, it's I don't see like but I what I 
don't do is I don't say, oh, good person, automatically, you know, like, oh, Pete, good resume, so he's good. It's like, no, I want to know more about him. And the more you look into Pete Buttigieg, the more it's like, this guy is not, not, not good. But I don't need to spend more time on him because he is not going to win. Uh, Bernie Sanders is, and I'm feeling that more and more. And, but you're going to have to listen to me talk about Buttigieg because I already recorded the episode and I want to put it out. So that's all that goes for that. Someone's beeping at me. I don't know if you can hear that. Eh, where are we here? Did I am actually recording this? I am, right? Yep. Okay. All right. That's all. Um, enjoy the show. I'm kind of sitting here thinking, what should I do for tonight's episode? And I know I've been heavy on the politics lately, but you'll have to bear with me, folks, because tonight I got to talk about him. I'm sitting here staring at a card I just got in the mail today from none other than the famous Mayor Pete. Mayor Cheat. Wall Street Pete. What shall we call him? What do we know about him? Well, I'm also sitting here looking at my Kindle on which I have just downloaded a copy that I found online of Mayor Pete's book, Shortest Way Home. Now, I've been reading the sample, the free sample, the past few mornings, and uh, I'm going to say it outright. He's a good writer, Mayor Pete. Uh, I actually, this morning, decided to look into whether he was the writer. So, I, could it be that it was ghostwritten? Uh, it seems that he did write it. Um, I know he's an intelligent person. There's no doubt in my mind about that, listening to him talk, and his career, his resume. Uh, he's very intelligent. Uh, what he strikes me as is 2020's Obama. And I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> and we're going to get into that. But first, before we do that, I want to just play this. I haven't watched this yet, but I was going over to theintercept.com, one of the better websites for keeping up on the uh, this year's election and other current events, but because they have been doing a really good job covering the debacle in Iowa at the caucuses, and I wanted to see if there were any new updates, has the whole count been brought in, um, and there are two things I want to read you from there, and then we're going to listen to a quick video. I'm just going to read you two headlines. Oh boy. Oh boy, folks, I messed this up because... Yep, yep, mm-hmm. this is a podcast that is being done on the fly. I actually thought about, you know, I had to do one of these scripted and write it out, but, um, well, I'm kind of feeling a little bit, not lazy, but uh, I don't want to take on too much, so I'm going to just get this out there. So there's a, here's the two other articles that I wanted to point out. Non, this is the headline uh, written by Ryan Grimm, good reporter. Non-traditional voters at Iowa satellite caucuses could tip the balance to Bernie Sanders. Uh, the subhead... 41 delegates are up for grabs in the satellite caucuses. Only the Sanders campaign invested in winning them. Now, I'm not going to read that, but that's that's good news, you know. I don't think it, at this point it really matters. I mean, you'd want him to get the win, but the narrative has been set. And that is what Iowa really is more about than the actual delegates. It's the narrative setting. And that's why score one for the Democrats in the sense that they didn't let Bernie get the narrative. Um, it, it seems that if we're to believe the results that Pete won, you know, who knows? I don't want to get into it now. It's just like Pete had a good showing, better than I predicted, although I did predict he would finish in second. Um, so I'm not going to deny that. But uh, And Biden uh, did worse than a lot of us thought. I think actually if I was writing the headline of that day, if it had come out, the results had all been reported like they normally are and normally should be in a functioning democracy. Uh, I think the headline for me that day would have been frontrunner Joe Biden has, I don't know, I, I'm not you know, making a headline up off the top of my head, but frontrunner Joe Biden fails in Iowa attempt to set campaign off the ground. That's way too long for a headline. But, you know, he came in fourth, way worse than a lot of us thought. And, uh, yeah, that's bad for him, and that's good for Bernie. Also good for Bernie is that Klobuchar did well. Like, you've still got... Klobuchar and other centrist candidates. You've got Bloomberg around. 
uh, it's looking more and more like this Democratic um, primary is very similar to the 2016 Republican primary, where the the powers that be, the establishment, don't have a good candidate, and they're all kind of fighting. They're not working together. They're all kind of fighting for who the candidate should be. They can't agree. And this is exactly the thing. That's their... their that system is falling apart because it's all based on, like, me, 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 no, me. I, no, I'm not going to cooperate. I want to win. No, I want to win. And, you know, uh, so they aren't working together. And meanwhile, like, Trump... Uh, Trump Bernie, don't take anything into that. I'm just tired. Bernie, like Trump, has a strong base of support. They're not. We're not wavering. Like I have my issues with Bernie, but he's still by far the best candidate to me, uh, and I want to see him go against Trump. I think that's a good referendum for the future, uh, and I trust him. That's the main key with Bernie for me is I, I just trust him to do what he says. I don't trust any of these other people. Um, that's really what it comes down to, even though I don't agree with some of his takes um, that I've mentioned in other podcasts. Uh, climate change. We don't need to declare war on climate. We need to love our environment and use love. Anyway, let's get back to Mayor Pete because we don't want to forget about him. And I really did. I went out to the mail today to get a, a, a letter I was expecting from my parents. And I pull it out and, uh, well, I found this card. A new era of leadership at home and abroad. Washington, Mayor Pete, and he's standing there. He's got the old shirt sleeves all rolled up. Voters abroad for 2020 Pete 20. Voters abroad. And they actually sent it to my house here. And they got the address. Well, they got the numbers right. But they got the name of my little neighborhood wrong. It is not Shimatali. It's Shimo. Oh, I'm sorry. They put Shimotali. It is actually uh, Shimotaki. Which means upper waterfall. Yes, I live near the upper waterfall. Which, yes. Anyway, it doesn't actually exist. That I know of. I can't find it. And I've been by that river looking... Okay, but back to Pete, folks. So let's um, go down. There's one more headline here about just a little update here. Uh, and I like how this is sub the, the category this falls under is election insecurity. Okay, uh, here's a headline from and the writer is Mika Lee. I wonder if, she, I wonder if it's related to MJ Lee of uh, the CNN fame. Uh, no, this person's actually working for a legitimate outlet. Good, doing good journalism. Okay, the Iowa Democratic Party did the opposite of what it should have done to secure its disastrous app. Well, that's a long headline, too. I guess headlines are longer these days in the new media. Um, but there you go. And here's the suburb. Hiding the details of how a computer system works does nothing to make it more secure. Election systems should instead rely on, and in quotes, open design. And, oh, that's so true. I mean, like... All the stuff about, like, the way they're trying to hide stuff, all that, like, that's just so obvious. Like, anything that's being hidden from us right now, folks, is shady, okay? Transparency. They are expecting transparency from us, the individual. We should definitely expect it from our public institutions. I think we should go even further and, like, you know, corporations, the powerful corporations like Facebook and all them should be more, much, much more transparent. But the government definitely should be transparent, you know, especially on our elections. Come on. No reason for it not to be. Anyway, so Mayor Pete, in the on the book cover, on the shortest way home, has got a picture of him standing in front of a dilapidated looking building in South Bend, I'm assuming, and he's like looking down all earnestly and like rolling up his sleeves. He's going to get to work for us, everybody. Going to get to work, Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete. Now, here we go. I don't want to be too much of a jerk to Pete. Here's what I told my wife tonight when I was kind of warming up, warming up my thoughts on this uh, while I was washing the dishes. Um, like I said, he's smart. And, uh, what did I tell her? Jeez, boys. Boys, I might have to cut this out. Or at least edit it down. But never mind. I'm putting shit out now fast so my friends can listen to it on their commutes. So I don't want to spend too much time. It's all ad-lib. It's all free form. So what did I say? Boy, I am like... my This week has been absolute craziness on my sleep. And uh, it's because I'm a werewolf. And it's going to be a super moon on Saturday. And, uh, yeah, when the moon is full, the sleeping pattern. Like, last night I went to bed at 10. And literally I woke up and I was like, oh, it's got to be like 4. And I checked, it was like 12.20. And that's what happens this, this, like, week around the full moon. I'll sleep for, like, two hours and it'll feel like I've slept, like, 6 or 7. Um, but then in, later in the day I'll get these kind of, like, periods where I'm like, wow, I didn't sleep. And then I'll lay down and the next thing I'll be awake again. So, Got to keep working with this. Um, anyway, Mayor Pete, I said to her that, you know, I think he's just too ambitious. I heard somewhere, I think it's in the article. Let me see if I can find that article because that was a good article. 
Um, Nathan Robinson of Foreign Affairs. Back in the spring, I heard this on a the I'm, I like giving shout outs. That's what the new economy is all about. The Daily Evolver, which is an integral uh, theory podcast by Jeff Salzman. It's very good. Um, I do not agree with a lot of Jeff Salzman's politics. I think he's way too mainstream. Uh, but he was kind of like one of the people that was um, really, I think he probably still is high on Mayor Pete. Um, but uh, there was this, he, but he read this article by uh, Nathan J. Robinson, who I really like from Current Affairs. He's the editor there. And uh, it's called All About Pete. Came out last. Oh, oh, he's also, oh, this is a close up of him. Yeah, there he's rolling up the. And here's the to stop this. This was filed oh, last uh, March twentieth, twenty nineteen. Okay. Uh, only, and here's his subletter. Only accept politicians who have proved they actually care about people other than themselves. So you know this ain't going to be a very nice article. And I'll just read the. I'll read the first part of it. What the heck? Highlights. Practice my reading. I got to read my book tonight. Here we go. Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is being hyped as the Democratic celebrity of the moment. Buttigieg has been the subject of buzz since 2014, when the Washington Post called him the most interesting mayor you've never heard of. Now, Buttigieg is running for president, and headlines are appearing in New York and the New York Times, like, Could Pete Buttigieg Become the First Millennial President? and The First Gay President? Barack Obama has mentioned Buttigieg as one of the rising stars of the Democratic Party. He appeared at a well-received CNN town hall. 538 is charting his possible paths to the nomination, complete with inscrutable diagrams, and Buttigieg has been rising in the polls, even placing third in an Iowa poll after Biden and Sanders. Well, that's interesting. This is last fall, or uh, spring. And so Sanders and Buttigieg did well, but Biden fell. And we all kind of predicted that, a lot of us progressives, it took a little longer than we thought, but Biden just don't got the support, boys. Um, he is still considered a long shot. He's only 37, and no one has ever gone directly from being a mayor to being a president, let alone the mayor of a city half the size of Boise. Boise, there's a shout-out to Jack Peterson and Jesse. You guys are going to be on the podcast at some point. But, of course, we live in strange times, and nobody had ever gone from firing D-list celebrities on a reality show to being president either. So if there's one thing we should expect, it's the unexpected. And that, that was a point I made to my wife tonight. I was like, you know, Trump winning basically opened up the possibility. Everybody thought, well, I, if he can do it, I can do it, which is a good thing. Um, because until Trump won, we had, who's running this year? Ah, Bush and Clinton. Who's running next year? Another Bush. Another Clinton. Like it was, you know, we had this set up for a political dynasty thing going. And then Trump won. And all of a sudden, everybody, their dog thinks they can be president. If you know only one thing about Pete Buttigieg, back to the article, sorry, it's that he's the small-town mayor who is making a splash. If you know a half a dozen things about Pete Buttigieg, it's also that he's young, gay, a Rhodes Scholar, an Arabic-speaking polyglot, and an Afghanistan veteran. If you know anything more than that about Pete Buttigieg, you probably live in South Bend, Indiana. This is a little strange. These are all facts about him, but they don't tell us much about what he believes or what he advocates. The nationwide attention to Buttigieg seems more to be due to the fact that he is a highly credentialed Rust Belt mayor rather than what he has actually said and done. He's a gay millennial from Indiana, yes, but should he be president of the United States? When he is asked about what his actual policies are, Buttigieg is often many evasive. He has mentioned getting rid of the Electoral College and expanding the Supreme Court, but his speech is often abstract. In this exchange, for instance, a vice reporter praised Press Buttigieg to better specify his comments. And the vice reporter, should I read this? Let's see. All right, I'm going to read this little comment and then we'll finish. The vice, re vice reporter, I'm going to do a voice for this. I listened to your talk today. On the one hand, you definitely speak very progressively, but you don't have a lot of super specific policy ideas. Buttigieg. Part of where the left and the center-left have gone wrong is that we've been so policy-led that we haven't been as philosophical. We like to think of ourselves as the intellectual ones. But the truth is that the right has done a better job, in my lifetime, of connecting up its philosophy and its values to its politics. Right now, I think we need to articulate the values, lay out our philosophical commitments, and then develop policies off of that. And I'm working very hard not to put the cart before the horse. Vice. Is there a time for that? They want the list. They want to know exactly what you're going to do. Buttigieg. 
I think it can actually be a little bit dishonest to think you have it all figured out on day one. I think anybody in this race is going to be a lot more specific or policy-oriented than the current president. But I don't think we ought to have that all locked in on day one. Okay, I actually can understand that point of view. Um, I could keep reading this article, but I'll link it. Maybe I'll read a little more and make a comment at the end of the podcast or something. But I read this at the time last year. uh, And... The, the book is good that he wrote. The best political autobiography since Barack Obama. Obama. And I'm going to read it cover to cover. He says, I recommend anybody considering supporting him, read it cover to cover. I'm not considering supporting him. I just want to know more about the guy. And it's and Nathan Robinson says, it is very personal, very well written, and lays out a narrative that makes Buttigieg seem a natural and qualified candidate for the president. It also provides irrefutable evidence that no serious progressive should want Pete Buttigieg anywhere near national public office. Okay, there's more into that article. Um, I won't read on, but that's good enough. So that's Nathan J. Robinson. He's definitely a you know he's solid, progressive. Now let's go to this clip that I was going to play here, and then we'll finish this up. I haven't listened to this yet. Um, I have not listened to this yet. No, but it says Mayor Pete flip flopper in, in chief, and it's a six minute video. It's from uh, the guy who does one of the podcasts on The Intercept. I can't remember how to pronounce his name. I'll get it at the end of this. Here's what he says. Let's see how the, let's see this records. I think it does. Here we go. I haven't watched this either. What does presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg actually believe? And can this rising star of the Democratic Party be trusted to stick to what he says he believes? Just look at the evidence, because I'm not so sure. What is it about Mayor Pete that reminds me so much of... John Kerry, who was, of course, the losing Democratic presidential candidate in 2004. Could it be that both men are keen to play up their military credentials as a way of looking tough to the media and to Republicans? John Kerry, Vietnam veteran. I'm John Kerry, and I'm reporting for duty. (laughs) Pete Buttigieg, Afghan war vet. I have more military experience, more military experience, more military experience under my belt than anybody to come into that office since George H.W. Bush. But you know, it's not the military background, it's the U-turns. You remember how candidate Kerry was labeled a flip-flopper, both by the media and, of course, by his Republican opponents. Well, Mayor Pete seems to be the flip-flopper-in-chief of the 2020 election. Name a big issue, and he's almost certainly switched positions, contradicted himself, leaving those of us who wrongly saw him as a strong candidate, very impressive guy, substantive guy, feeling disappointed and feeling foolish. Take Medicare for all. Buttigieg was a big supporter. Or so he said. I, Pete Buttigieg, politician, do henceforth and forthwith declare most affirmatively and indubitably unto the ages that I do favor Medicare for all. He tweeted back at the start of 2018. In February 2019, he went on Morning Joe and described Medicare for all as the compromise position. What is Medicare for all? It's a compromise. I mean, in the UK, you got national health care. We've got to stop allowing the right to move the, the goalposts. But it wasn't the right that moved the goalposts on Medicare for all. It was Buttigieg. As it dawned on him that he'd need this guy's voters to have any chance of winning Biden. nomination, and as he got more and more money from Wall Street, Buttigieg has collected more than $3 million in so-called Wall Street money. He changed his tune and began attacking both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren from the right over their support for Medicare for All. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren believe that we have to force ourselves into Medicare for All, where private insurance is abolished. Many would argue that it's the big donors, the special interests, who have control of the Buttigieg messaging. These days, Mayor Pete is adamant that taking money from rich people, even in wine caves, has no impact on his policies or positions. Would that pollute my campaign because it came from a wealthy person? No, yes. I would be glad to have that support. But again, the flip It can, of course. Here he is in 2010 while running for Indiana State Treasurer. We need to get uh, special interest money out of the Treasury space. I made a decision that I wasn't going to accept any money from a bank that could be doing business with the State Treasurer's office. Uh, I think it creates a, a conflict of interest. Then there's the border. Mayor Pete is on tape raising his hand live on TV at a presidential debate back in June, agreeing, admirably in my view, that the act of crossing the border by a migrant should be decriminalized. That criminalization, that is the basis for family separation. Bold move, Pete. 
bold move. And yet the very next month, the very next month, yep, you guessed it, he flip-flopped. When I'm president, illegally crossing the border will still be illegal. It's a point of clarification. You did raise your hand in the last debate. You do want to decriminalize crossing the border. So in my view, if, if fraud is involved, then that's suitable for the criminal statute. By October, Buttigieg was dismissing the policy of decriminalizing border crossings as some sort of horrible left-wing purity test. There are some here on this stage who say it doesn't count unless we go even further. Immigration reform isn't enough unless we also decriminalize border crossings. Seriously? Then there's the issue that first made me such an admirer of Mayor Pete. His willingness to advocate for proper structural reform of a very broken U.S. political system. Here he is on my podcast, Deconstructed, back in May. Abolish the Electoral College, yes or no? Yes, been saying that since day one. Add new justices to the Supreme Court to balance it out, given the stolen seat. So we definitely need to do structural reform on the Supreme Court. But in October, in a New York Times piece all about Buttigieg moving to the center, reporter Reed Epstein revealed how, quote, multiple financial bundlers told the campaign that the Supreme Court and Electoral College proposals were not popular. Mr. Buttigieg has since quietly dropped them from his stump speech. Quietly dropped them. Wow. But perhaps his biggest flip-flop of all, Bernie Sanders. I was uh, a big fan of Bernie Sanders when I was 18 years old. See, back when he was a teenager, Pete won a John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage essay contest for a piece entitled Bernie Sanders. Bernie's energy, candor, conviction, and ability to bring people together, wrote Pete, stand against a current of opportunism, moral compromise, and partisanship, which runs rampant on the American political scene. That was then. Today, though, Buttigieg is not just running against Bernie for the Democratic presidential nomination. He's putting out ridiculous press releases, suggesting Sanders could alienate independents. All right, fine. It's not fair to accuse him of flip-flopping on Bernie, given it was nearly 20 years ago and he was just an 18-year-old high school student at the time. But healthcare, immigration, special interests, political reform, he's flip-flopped for the worse on all of them. In the past 12 months alone, don't get me wrong, Buttigieg would be a far better and a far more progressive presidential candidate than John Kerry ever was. In fact, even now, post flip-flops, his policy platform is to the left of Barack Obama's in 2008. But if you're looking for consistency, whether moral or political, if you're looking for a candidate who has very clear principles and sticks to them, no matter what a focus group or a big donor says to him, then maybe, just maybe, Mayor Pete isn't your guy. Okay, folks, I have to agree with a lot of that. Um, and that's the thing. I think we need consistency and we need people like the, the thing is, I keep saying this, that this issue is about integrity. Uh, it's not that you can't have you can't have changed a position in the past, but to change a position from the start of the campaign to now, um, as drastically as it seems he has, come on, you know, so how can you trust him? We don't know. We never knew who this a year ago. At this time, I'd never heard his name before. And that was kind of how, you know, Obama had a little bit more of a background because he gave the speech at the Democratic uh, Convention in 2004. And he was known for, you know, I don't remember. I knew about him in like 2006, I believe. So, you know, but like Mayor Pete came out of nowhere. And uh, he's younger than Obama. He has less experience than Obama. Um, I actually, I, I told my wife, I said, he's this year's Obama. And I, like I said, I, I, oh, I said that at the start of this podcast, didn't I? Um, I don't mean that in a good way. Well, that's enough, though, folks. Um, I will keep talking about or looking into Mayor Pete. I'll read his book, and I'll tell you if I learn anything else. I actually tried to look through his book uh, I, after I downloaded it to see, like, just using the table of contents, like, are there policy, particular chapters about policy? I couldn't find any that really made me think it, there were. Uh, like I said, it's a good read, but I read a lot of good books, so um, I'll just have to see how he does these next few weeks if... Um, if he stays as like the front runner against, if he's like Bernie's cheap competition, then I'll keep reading the book, but don't really want to read all of Mayor Pete's book that much, even though, like I said, it's well-written, but I don't care about him that much. Uh, but if for the sake of the podcast and for my own knowledge, so I know what I'm talking about, I will read it if need be. All right. I think that's good enough. Uh, I'm going to probably, what am I going to do next? Uh, I might throw something else in here, maybe a song or something. Maybe something humorous, maybe some guitar, and I don't know. But uh, the Teacher and the Tree Man, chapters 11 and 12, are coming up. Another important character, this is a little foreshadowing, will be introduced. I won't say which one that is. 
Um, but it's there are two good chapters, and actually this is a very key turning point in the story, chapter 11, and uh, yeah, you'll see. Okay, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you uh, next time. The, the podcast, the official podcast release dates I have decided will be Monday morning my time, or Sunday night, Monday morning, and uh, Thursday night, Friday morning my time, the two of the week with my book. And then I'll probably do some fun stuff in between. Uh, I'm going to set up over the, these next several days a Patreon site, which that is a way that can people can support me. I'll probably start out with just having like the lowest donation is $1 and then those people can get all the podcasts and then I'll have higher. You can pay me five bucks a month. You can pay me 10 bucks and I'll think of other things to do for that. But for the time being, I'm just getting that started and uh, I'll, but for right now, I'm just going to put all the podcasts out on my feed because as far as I know, I've got only like four listeners. <laughs> That's going to change, man. I'm going to be the next Rogan, dude. Yo, Rogan. Okay. Anyway, being goofy. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the BNP Realm with Brian Winchell. Oh, okay. Puff the magic dragon, live by the sea. In a land called Mayor Pete. The magic candidate will save us from Donald Trump. He is the man we've been waiting for because he is not a grump. Pete, the magic boom face, has a butt for a face and sings his songs from South Bend, Indiana, where the Irish play their games. Chapter 11, A Friendly Upper, A Local News Downer. Thanks for meeting me on such short notice, Lucas said as he put two large mugs of beer onto the table between him and his friend. I know Monday Night Football ain't exactly high on your priority list. No, Larry said, swigging down almost half of the beer in a few gulps. It's not, but beer is. Lucas laughed. Good to see some things about Larry Sherry haven't changed. Nope, Larry said. I may change my appearance, but I highly doubt I'll ever give up my love of beer. Do you want another? Lucas looked at his mug, still more than half full, and said, You go ahead, I'll try to catch up. Larry went to the bar, leaving Lucas to ponder his day. It had been a weird one. At school, he'd felt a renewed sense of power after he'd stood up for Chris Lee and called the city council. However, when he came home and had to deal with a still-cold Terry... That feeling had been replaced by anxiety, as he worried about the many small problems life was throwing at him. Rather than addressing them by himself, he'd decided he would tackle the problem by going out with Larry Sherry, drinking some beer, eating some pizza, and watching mammoth men mauling each other on a muddy field on Monday night football. Larry sat down and put another beer in front of Lucas. So you won't have to go to the bar when you finish that one. Lucas smiled. He'd expected Larry to do that, but still appreciated the gesture. To old friendships, Larry said, clanking mugs at Lucas. When do you head up to Rainier? Lucas asked. Thursday, Larry answered. But I don't think you invited me out here to talk about that, did you? I don't know what I wanted to talk to you about, Lucas said. Is it about this man in the tree of yours? Larry asked. That's part of it, Lucas said. But I think I've learned from my experience with Terry that the less I say about that, the better. Larry chuckled. It's her, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so, Lucas said. How'd you know? Let's just say I can remember a few nights in college that were as much about talking about your girl troubles as they were drinking beer and watching football. Lucas laughed. Guilty as charged. Anyway, Larry said, what's going on? 
Well, Lucas said, not sure where to start. She's still not talking to me about what she thinks is a joke that I won't come clean about. But I'm stuck because Terry is a stickler for telling the truth, even if the other person doesn't want to hear it. So if I say it was a joke, but then she finds out it's not, she's going to be even more pissed. I see your problem, Larry said. But don't you think she'll cut you some slack considering how unbelievable it is? Yeah, maybe so, Lucas said. Terry's a complex gal. The Terry I fell in love with sometimes disappears and is replaced by a mistrusting witch. Ouch, Larry said. Let me ask you this. I think you know why she can be that way, don't you? Yes, Lucas said, hating to rehash something he'd already told his friend about, but playing along. Her father left her when she was only five, and her mom didn't help future Terry because she raised her with the belief that all men were just as dishonest as her dad. And no matter how much they appear to be different, they will always disappoint you in the end. Yeah, such a childhood certainly doesn't help, Larry agreed. No, it doesn't, Lucas said. But I'm determined to be there for her, to prove her mom wrong, which means that sometimes I have to put up with a certain amount of bullshit from her. To your credit, I think you are more patient than I'd be, Larry said. But I think there is a bright side to your situation. Yeah? Yeah, Larry said. The bright side is that no matter how many times Terry's mom told her not to believe in men, obviously didn't fully believe her. Why do you say that? Because if she did, she wouldn't have married you, Larry said and finished his beer. You know, I never thought of it that way, Lucas said and also finished his beer. Time for another, I'd say, Larry said, getting up from the table. Indeed it is, Lucas said. And Larry, thanks. You got it. They enjoyed their companionship for the rest of the evening, and Lucas was pleased to see his favorite team, the Denver Broncos, eke out a victory over the New York Giants. To top it all off, Larry gave him a large bag of mushrooms at the end of the night and told Lucas he wanted to be there to help aid the man in the tree if he needed it. Lucas wasn't expecting this, but was drunk so gladly accepted the offer. When he left Larry at his curve that night, he was excitedly telling him, I'll see you Wednesday morning. Larry zoomed off in his idea of a rental car, a red Mustang, and Lucas hurried into his house. It was 10 p.m., so he was hoping Terry and Scarlett would be in bed already, and he wasn't disappointed. He hadn't spoken with Terry all day, but he wasn't complaining. Nope. Considering the way things have been going with Terry lately, a day without talking to her was probably for the best. Lucas spastically prepared the couch potatoes' requisite feast, a bag of greasy potato chips and a can of beer, and plopped himself onto the couch, enjoying the furniture's bouncy reaction. He grabbed the remote and flipped on the local news. Tensions continue in Israel, which has seen its deadliest year of violence in decades, the smiling blonde newswoman with too much red lipstick and blue eyeliner said. Could American lives be at risk? What about non-American lives? Lucas slurred. Don't they matter too? Lucas was well aware that this is a local news program, and, as such, it would focus on what it assumed were its viewers' concerns. But he'd long been bothered by the narcissistic focus of the mainstream media, as though American lives were somehow given a higher, the only, value over any other. A key guerrilla leader who was fighting the ruling Taliban in Afghanistan was killed in a suicide bombing yesterday, the newswoman was saying. Why am I watching this, Lucas thought. It was just a body count, and not the sort of information that could be good for a person's consciousness before sleeping. Besides, why was news out of a faraway country like Afghanistan being covered on the local news? Still, he didn't change the channel. And, closer to home, in Sacramento, a security guard killed himself yesterday after a gun battle with police and a rampage which left five dead and two wounded said the newswoman, who somehow still had a smile on her face. Perhaps she was related to Rialto? Lucas didn't think he could take much more, but rather than turning the channel, he got up and went to the kitchen for another beer. Not that he needed it, but he was on a roll, and who was he to get in the way of a good thing? As he went to the kitchen, he continued to ponder the local nightly news. He knew that for the people personally involved in these tragic stories, the stories were very relevant, life-changing events but for viewers like him? Usually, he didn't watch the local news, at least not since Scarlett had entered his life. He and Terry didn't want to expose her to the excessive violence. 
They both felt all watching such stories did was create a mindset of fear and distrust toward the world. At one time, Lucas was living next to a kind elderly woman who was a news junkie. When Lucas told her he'd gone to the city to see a concert or meet a friend, she'd always ask him things like, Aren't you afraid? Lucas would say, No, and ask her why she asked that, and she'd usually say, Well, on the news. And that was all Lucas needed to hear. As a result of this woman overexposing herself to this news, she rarely left the safety of her house, and when she did, it was only to go to safe places in her suburban neighborhood where such tragedies could never happen, at least according to her. Lucas knew she was a bit of an extreme case, but he also knew that most Americans got the majority of their news from television. Because of this, most people had this idea that the world was a dangerous place and people were not to be trusted. Lucas often reminded people that news stories were news because they were things that didn't happen very often. For example, a man who goes to the supermarket, buys some groceries, and has a nice talk with the bag boy won't make the news. A man who goes to the same store, attempts to rob the place, and critically injures the bag boy will. When put that way, most people say, of course. Yet the more they expose themselves to such news, the more likely they will start assuming, even subconsciously, that the news is an accurate, complete reflection of reality. As he walked back in the living room, already halfway into his just-opened beer, the TV was blaring. In spite of the struggling economy, one local company that is earning record profits is Mango Computers. Business industry insiders are reporting that CEO and founder Mike Miller is interested in using some of that money to enlarge his Mercury Media Company. Currently, Mercury owns four newspapers and three radio stations but insiders are saying Miller wants to expand into the world of television. Some are even suggesting Miller's ambitious goals are to possibly create a new cable news network to compete with CNN and Fox. The TV showed a handsome red-haired man who Lucas knew was Miller, walking out of a fancy hotel and being asked about his goal for a TV network. I have no comment at this time, he said. Lucas understood that to mean that the rumors were probably true, because if they weren't, he would have likely denied them. Lucas took another big gulp of his beer, and the anchor woman was back on the screen, saying, The citizens of Lincolnton, a small but growing town at the eastern edge of Pierce County, have one last chance to voice their concerns about plans for a large outlet mall to be built in a small corner of the Roosevelt Forest Preserve. Let's go to Nancy Nakamori, who is outside Lincolnton City Hall, where this fierce battle is brewing. Nancy? Lucas sat down, leaned forward on the couch, elbows on his knees and chin on his hands, and glared at the television. The five-mile-square section of land under dispute is known as Last Rush Canyon. Lucas nearly jumped out of his chair, because of a legendary outlaw who apparently found a gold nugget in Salisbury Creek during the Depression, said Nakamori, all bundled up in a bright blue action news team windbreaker in front of the two-story city hall. Environmentalists are hoping they can strike it rich with one last rush to convince the local residents that the land should stay in its natural state. The controversy started when federal land use regulations were loosened four years ago, allowing states to sell small parcels of forest preserves for profit so long as the land is then used for a publicly beneficial activity. Local activists argue that not only does the mall not fit the definition of a publicly beneficial activity, the land contains endangered species, including Puget Sound Chinook salmon. However, a Pierce County Superior Court judge recently recommended that the deal go through because there was no conclusive evidence that there were any endangered species on the site. In two weeks, the Pierce County Land Assessor's Office will make the final determination whether or not to grant the permit. The screen flashed to a shot of a dark-haired, clean-cut man in a navy blue business suit and bright red tie sitting behind a large oak desk. On the bottom of the screen it said, John Ryder Schneider, CEO, J.R. Schneider, Inc. We feel confident the permit is going to be granted, and when it is, we will begin the logging process. You arrogant jerk, Lucas yelled at the TV, not thinking about his sleeping family. The screen went back to Nakamori, who hadn't lost her concerned look. A final citizen input meeting will be held at Rainier View High School next Monday night. Lucas was trying to remember all this, 
but his drunkenness was making that very difficult. He was thinking he could just contact the Tacoma Post in the morning for details about the citizen input meeting when suddenly a familiar face appeared on the TV. With the tagline, Citizen Activist, under his name, Sam Danielson, legendary Rainier View Elementary School teacher, said, We want every concerned citizen of Lincolnton to come out and express their opinions about this. It's the right thing to do in a democracy. This mall is going to destroy a beautiful forest and will also be an eyesore that increases sprawl and traffic congestion. Lucas told himself to remember to talk to Danielson in the morning. He turned off the TV, not wanting to hear any more of the disturbing news. It was just more shit to worry about. The implications of losing the forest to a mall were just too aggravating and shocking to consider, but he couldn't get it out of his mind, and he began to strike a pillow on the couch. Damn it! Damn it! No way! There's no way! They can't take my forest away! No way! He stopped striking the pillow and felt tears form in his eyes. He had to do something. Paul, came a groggy voice from behind him in the hall. What's going on? He stopped punching the pillow and cussing and looked up at Terry, who was leaning against the wall in a white bathrobe, her curly brown hair tussled from sleep. Oh, Terry, sorry. No, she said. What is it that's got you so mad that you woke me up? Terry, Lucas said. I'm a bit drunk. Obviously. Anyway, he said and flopped on the couch. They're going to tear down our forest and put in a fucking outlet mall. A fucking outlet mall. What? Yeah, our forest is going to be replaced by a fucking outlet mall, the bastards. Terry looked stunned. Lucas recognized that while Terry didn't spend as much time in the forest as he did, she still loved that it was there, that she could always access it just by walking out her back door. I thought it was a preserve. They can't sell that. It's public land. Nope, Lucas said. Something about land use laws that have recently been changed to allow states and counties to sell off parcels of the land for profit. For profit? Yeah, but the catch is, it has to be for something that's publicly beneficial or something like that. Yeah, right, an outlet mall. Publicly beneficial, sure, Terry said. I know, Lucas said. Look, Terry, I'm sorry about this weekend. It was a dumb thing to do. Are you admitting the man in the tree was a joke? Yeah, a bad idea for a joke, Lucas said. He wasn't sure why he was lying to Terry. Maybe it was because he just wanted everything to be back to normal. Or maybe it was more simple. Maybe he just wanted to forget all his troubles by getting laid. Okay, she said. Let's forget about it. Not worth losing any more sleep over. They walked to the bedroom. When they got there, Lucas started to strip down when he felt the bag of mushrooms in the inside pocket of his sweatpants. He was hoping Terry didn't notice him pause as he felt the bag, but he had no way of knowing for sure as he tossed the sweatpants into a pile on the floor. Do you want to really make up? He asked, raising his eyebrows suggestively. I'd love to, she said, taking him in her arms and falling to the bed. As their lips locked, Lucas was struck by one strange thought before descending into a much-needed thoughtless session of sex. If they are going to chop down the forest, those mushrooms had better work. Chapter 12, A Time for Action There's nothing like waking up to a soft kiss on the lips. When it happened to Lucas early that Tuesday morning, he rolled over pleasantly and for a moment thought everything had returned back to normal. Then, an avalanche of thoughts buried this delusion and Lucas leaped out of bed without opening his eyes. In the process, he just about knocked Terry over, but she was nimble enough to back out of the way. Whoa, tiger, she said. Take her easy. Sorry, Lucas said, already hopping into his blue jeans. I've got a million things I gotta get done this morning. You and me both, Terry said. What are you gonna do about the forest? Well, Lucas said, putting on a brown sweater over a plain white t-shirt. Danielson was on the news last night, so I'm gonna get the skinny from him, see where that takes me. How much time until the decision is made? Not enough, Lucas said. Two weeks didn't sound too promising, but I've got to at least register my disgust. Definitely, Terry said, leaning into her dresser mirror so she could apply a dab of moisturizer to her cheeks. Okay, kiddo, I gotta scoot. All right, Lucas said. See you tonight. Terry bounded out of the room, and Lucas breathed a sigh of relief. They were back on good terms, and that meant a lot to him. 
If things seemed a bit crazy in the outside world, at least they were all right at home. Lucas was in the middle of lathering himself in a lightning frenzy of soap and water when he suddenly remembered the obsession that had predated all of the latest strange developments in his life. Rialto. Stupid Rialto. For a millisecond, Lucas paused because he'd had the craziest thought. Maybe Terry was right. Maybe his competition with Rialto was childish and petty, just a ridiculous expression of two bored adults with nothing better to do with their time. Yes, now that he had some real issues to deal with, getting back at Rialto just didn't seem all that important. However, one thing didn't change. He still couldn't stand the hairy gorilla. Lucas wanted to take his mind off Rialto, so he decided to check his email. As he sat down at the computer and the America Online homepage came up, the main news story had a photo of a small fire coming out of one of the World Trade Centers in New York. The article was pretty vague, saying only that a small plane had crashed into the building, so Lucas figured it was just another case of someone abusing society's accepted inebriant, alcohol, and then making the mistake of taking control of a fast-moving vehicle. Lucas thought nothing more of the story and clicked on his email. There was really nothing of interest in the first few messages, but then he noticed a note from another of his old college roommates, John Weisenberg, who currently lived in New York City. Like Weisenberg, who could talk the ears off the most patient listeners, the email was a rambler, mostly updating Lucas on Weisenberg's ever-continuing job-bouncing and woman-chasing. It also ventured into a rant against New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, which made Lucas smile. No one could rant like Weisenberg. Fortunately, Lucas saw mostly eye-to-eye with him, so reading or hearing his rants was enjoyable. When he finished the email, Lucas didn't have a lot of time to respond, so simply wrote, Hey man, I hear you were out drinking late last night and crashed your biplane into the WTC. Be careful, dude! Happy that he had been able to tie the events of the day into a sidelong personal insult against the partying Weisenberg, Lucas folded his laptop and got ready to face the day. For some reason, he felt unsettled. With the weather forecasted to be nice, things patched up with Terry, and the message from his old friend who he hadn't heard from in months, there was absolutely no reason to feel uneasy. But there it was. When he got to school, there was a noticeable buzz in the teacher's room. Oddly, he heard sound from the seldom-used TV in the corner of the room, and several of the teachers were watching it. What's going on? Lucas wondered. He walked into the room and saw an image of the WTC, but the smoke and hole in the side of it looked a lot bigger than it had on the Internet. What's up? he asked Wendy. Haven't you heard? she asked. America's under attack. Just like that. That simple. From whom? he asked. Well, we don't know that it's under attack, Danielson said. All we know is two commercial airliners apparently flew into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center, and about 30 minutes ago, another airliner was reported to have flown into the Pentagon in Washington. It's like something out of a bad Hollywood movie, Wendy said, except it's real. Wendy seemed pretty shook up, and Lucas could tell from her smeared makeup that she'd been crying. Lucas wanted to ask if she was okay, but the shock of the news overwhelmed his capacity for speech. Finally, he said, Wendy, you all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, she answered rather defensively. Everything's fine. Lucas watched the TV for a few more minutes. The images and the excitement of the news reporters were unreal, and Lucas found it hard to turn away. But at last, he remembered he had some things to take care of before class, so he said, Well, it's definitely not your normal way to start a Tuesday, and walked away, not noticing that his comments had caused the other teachers to wince. He went to his desk and checked his voicemail. He had a message from a man who sounded like he'd either drunk too much coffee or had a cocaine habit. Hi, Paul, the message began. Robert G. Phillips, City Council, returning your call. I'm assuming you know why I'm calling, so I'll cut to the chase. You're not the first to call about that crappy intersection, but you're going to be one of the last. We're going to get that thing fixed, and soon. Problem has been that it's not in Lincoln City limits, so it's the county that's been dropping the ball. With that said, let me tell you something that will make you very happy. Around here, I'm the guy who makes things happen, so when I say it will be fixed, it will be fixed. 
I'm in the process of closing the deal to get a crew out there to improve it, and sometime in the next few weeks or so, you may start seeing some folks out there, surveyors and such, working on the problem. Now, please, don't go announcing this everywhere. It's not yet official, but it may as well be. That's right. No more little kids are going to get hurt there. That I can guarantee. Well, if there's anything else I can do for you, give me a jingle any time. Lucas smiled widely and put down the phone. In his experience, this was unprecedented. Usually, when he'd taken action by working within the system, he'd been bounced from one bureaucratic buffoon to another, never really getting anywhere but frustrated. So even though he often cared about problems and could easily become outraged about injustice, he'd all but given hope about his own power to change things. But this time, all it had taken was one phone call and the city councilman had been prompted to action, to stand up for the innocent, to fight the good fight. Like Terry's kiss, this thought warmed Lucas to the bone and caused him to strut to the coffee machines. Hey, Paul, Danielson said, what's there to be so chipper about? Just then Lucas remembered them all, and it felt like his blood was being sucked out of him by some high-powered robotic vacuum cleaner. Sam, I need to talk to you. Sure, Danielson said, gathering several manila envelopes full of colorful papers. Art projects? Lucas asked as the two men walked down the long hall to their classrooms. Yes, Danielson said, me and my art projects. The older I get, the more I like grading them, which is strange, I suppose. Lots of things are strange, Lucas said. Danielson didn't respond. Instead, he asked, what's on your mind? A lot, Lucas said, but mostly the forest behind my house. What's going on with it? You know, Last Rush Canyon, Lucas said. Oh, hell, Danielson said, stopping for a moment in the empty hall still too early for the presence of the students. You live over there? I didn't remember that. Yeah, Lucas said, and I didn't find out about it until last night when I just luckily happened to see it, and you, on the news. Sam, I've got to find some way to help. Terry wants to help, too. Good, good, Danielson said. They reached Lucas's door and went into his classroom. Us activists are having a meeting this Thursday night if you'd like to come. Count us in, Lucas said. What's this all about, Sam? I mean, don't they know that it's really not safe to build in a canyon like that? Well, the mall will be located in the meadow next to the canyon, Danielson said, and the parking lot will extend toward the canyon, and they'll clear a part of it for future expansion. Anyway, to answer your question, yes, I'm sure they know it's not real safe to build there, Danielson said, scratching his gray mustache and readjusting his glasses on his long nose. But they build things anyway. What's the point of worrying about some future catastrophe, 10, 20 years down the road? So long as you can make a profit now, that's what it's all about, eh? Lucas sat down in his chair. Paul, can I ask you something? Yeah, sure. What do you know about Chris Lee? How much do you know, Lucas asked. Well, I know the board is reviewing it Thursday afternoon, but I don't know the details about what happened. Lucas explained to Danielson what happened, and Danielson who had the older Schmidt in his class, didn't need an explanation about the rest. The Schmitz. Damn. Yeah, Lucas said. They're pretty unbending from what I hear. Anyway, I'm going to go to the school board meeting to support Chris. Wow, Danielson said. That's a great idea. I'll go as his ex-teacher. Say a few words myself. Lucas rubbed his hands through his hair. It had grown out enough so it almost covered his bloodshot eyes. He was feeling the effects of a delayed hangover. To make matters worse, he hadn't shaved that morning, so his look wasn't exactly becoming for an elementary school teacher. Danielson took this all in and said, Is something else the matter? Lucas looked up, a bit shocked by the question. How was he supposed to respond? Did he dare tell Danielson about the man in the tree? No, he couldn't. Not yet. Not without talking to Sylvanus more. And maybe... Just maybe he wouldn't have to worry about it. Maybe those mushrooms were going to work. Nah, Lucas said. I've just had a bit of a rough week with Terry, but it's all good now. Danielson smiled. Well, good. So, looks like Thursday is meeting day. Yeah, Lucas began to say, when all of a sudden, Willie Rialto, looking fit, tan, and hairy, in a nylon teal Miami Dolphins sweatsuit, came strolling into the room. There you are, he said to Danielson. I'm glad I caught you. When's the next meeting? Thursday night? Lucas couldn't believe this. I'll be there. Always good to have you, Willie, Danielson said to Rialto, who was already walking out the door. 
Just then, Lucas remembered he'd never had that satisfying conversation with Rialto, where he would rub it in that he'd won the Teacher of the Year award first. A part of him still wanted to, but another part, a growing part, said it really wasn't necessary. So he ignored action for now. Instead, he jiggled his head to snap himself back into reality and asked, How is Willie involved? Oh, he's been involved a long time, Danielson said. At least two years. He never told you about that? No, Lucas said, wondering if they needed to cut back a bit on the gambling and actually talk for once. He didn't. Funny how a person can know someone but not really know them, Danielson said. Well, I suppose I better go get ready for class. He gathered his manila folders full of colorful artwork and left Lucas alone. Willie Rialto? Helping to save a forest?